are listening to a podcast from The National. Interregnum. When the old order is not yet completely gone and the new has yet to be fully emerged. Over the years, a Western-centric approach to economic growth has been dominated by multilateralism, which is hard to do under the best of circumstances. Over the last two years, it has been anything but that. The failure of the WTO's Doha round in 2015, China's moves with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, Belt and Road Initiative, the BRICS nation's new development bank, Russia's re-emergence, Donald Trump and the death of the Pacific TTP and other trade deals, Brexit, Catalonia, Iraqi Kurdistan, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change under threat before he even got going. It's like a bad Billy Joel song, which all points to this period being a critical moment epochal challenges, opportunities for global trade and investment. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, the National's Assistant Editor-in-Chief, and this is the Business Extra podcast from our newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm very happy to say that joining me, fresh from the IMF and World Bank annual meetings in Washington, D.C., is the National's Editor-in-Chief, Mina Al-Arabi. Mina, welcome. Thank you, Mustafa. It's good to be here. And I'm very keen to hear your insights. I mean, just let, if, if we can kind of take a broad approach to this and tell me, what, what was the mood like in, in Washington during the, the World Bank and IMF meetings? It was interesting. Partly you felt there was a real sense of making sure that the World Bank not only remains relevant, and they did have that challenge, I think, a couple of years earlier, but remains funded and supported by the administration down the road on Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, For sure, the Trump administration has made a lot of multilateral organizations sit up straight and think about how they actually do work. And while, yes, it's popular to criticize the administration, there is quite a bit to criticize on certain issues, I think it's important and healthy, actually, that the status quo is no longer guaranteed and complacency can't be rewarded. And so there was this sense, um, both at the World Bank, that, okay, how do we make sure that we get the attention of um, the President of the United States, but also remain relevant um, with all the different stakeholders? Of course, there were conversations like these earlier when you had the Asia Investment Bank come about and the BRICS Bank and others where you said, okay, well, maybe Bretton Woods is no longer relevant. And these conversations are not new. They've been happening for years. But it felt even more relevant this year round. I mean, we, we both of us have, have covered um, sort of global economic events over the years. And, and I think for many people, uh, the financial crisis, which we're coming up to sort of nine years now um, since it sort of got into its full full swing um, with the collapse of Lehman Brothers, it, it feels like we're still dealing with the, the fallout of that and the fact that it really showed that there were many weaknesses in the approach that the world had taken to globalization. And maybe there is some essence that some of the criticisms that emerged back then haven't been fully explored and fully dealt with? I mean, when the conversations are had at the high level in DC with these institutions, do do people still talk about the lessons of the financial crisis? Unfortunately not. There really isn't a a full grasp of the implications of the financial crisis because there's a sense of, okay, we've emerged from that. Having said that, I think having Jim Kim as World Bank president and his focus on issues, whether related to development or health or otherwise, um, has brought a different type of momentum to the World Bank. However, he did actually restructure quite a bit of the bureaucracy of the bank, and which I guess for an ordinary listener, you know, feels like, oh, snooze fest, who cares about bureaucracy? But it's how these large institutions operate. And in some ways, they became larger than themselves. And a certain bureaucracy 
got set in where you just had, you know, different programs and and regional um, focus. And then you had issues based focus. And there was often a huge amount of overlap and very little talking to each other. I think you're trying to break down some of that. And there were some of those conversations happening um, during the meetings in Washington for the annual uh, World Bank IMF meetings. In terms of the IMF, it's been very interesting because, of course, Christine Lagarde is, um, as managing director, is larger than life has been quite outspoken and actually was probably more vocal um, than others when it came to the financial crisis and also understanding that globalization has left certain people behind and that when you're looking at the technical assistance to different countries, that it must be uh, you know, broader and the communications element is much more important today. It's fascinating to see how, you know, for example, the IFC uh, or the IMF have fully embraced Facebook Live and uh, Twitter hashtags because they want the ordinary person to not feel that these are huge institutions that bring with them pain um, when it comes to austerity or bring with them pain by forcing the lifting of subsidies, because that's usually what you hear, especially in our part of the world. I mean, usually you say IMF and people are like, oh, God, they're going to raise the price of everything, fuel, bread, you know, people's day to day sustenance. And so actually, they've done a lot more in terms of outreach and using the modern day technology to make sure that people actually understand what these two institutions stand for and more generally what the international financial system can do for people rather than take away from people. You, you raised some interesting points in terms of communication because, I mean, for many years they were the only game in town. So, I mean, I remember with the Ar- Argentina's various crises, um, the IMF had a very bad reputation in South America. Um, but frankly, th- there was nowhere else to go, particularly if they needed to raise money again eventually at some point from capital markets. And Argentina managed to recover over time. So, I mean, just the IMF coming in doesn't necessarily mean that it's the end of the road for you as a viable economy. Of course, they've been operating in Egypt most recently, sort of the most high profile um, uh, mechanism that has been working there to get that economy back online. But with the Chinese doing the Asian, their own version of the essentially the IMF and World Bank, the AIIB, uh, there's now a, a different lever going on and very much focused on what the Chinese priorities are. And does that loom large in in conversations in D.C. in the last week? It does. And they have a presence, interestingly, at the annual meetings. Uh, That is interesting. I mean, a big presence or is it just sort of token? Enough of a present to know they're not only around but influential. Um, there was a very interesting uh, session that the Center for Global Development held, which is actually now chaired by the former Middle East North Africa director at the IMF, Masoud Ahmed, who knows the region very well, but of also course, knows yeah. um, development really well. And so now he's head of the Center for um, Global Development in D.C., just a few blocks away from all the annual meetings Um manic uh, schedule. And so he hosted a meeting where actually he had a great roster of speakers around one table. And that included the AIIB, that included um, EBRD, which is the European Bank, it included representation from the IMF and others. And it was very interesting to see actually the conversation changing where like you said, the IMF and the World Bank are no longer the only game in town and how they can work together. And and there were several sessions 
in the, uh, during the annual meetings that asked, do multilateral banks still have a role to play in today's world? Um, do you need to have regional banks that are in charge and, and just support a particular region and that's it? And the general consensus was actually there, unfortunately, are enough crises that everybody can chip in and can help. Um, liquidity is somewhat of a problem in certain areas. And so therefore, actually, you need more liquidity. Um, investment in infrastructure remains lacking across the board. And so then in that sense, especially when the Chinese come to it and they're interested in infrastructure, the more the merrier. When you, we talk about these big institutions, multilateral institutions like the World Bank, even the Chinese-backed AIIB, uh, it still jars with the, the priority for, for people and, and their leadership at the moment. It isn't these sort of big corporations or these big institutions. They, they feel like they really want flesh and blood people, no matter how flawed. And if, if we bring up Donald Trump, who has been very vocal on um, not just the World Bank and its place in the world, and, and obviously the US's support for that institution, but also you know huge trade deals, uh, the Pacific uh, TTP that, that his predecessor had worked very hard to get going, but also NAFTA, um, which has been in place for decades, and his idea is that you know these things don't work. You know mm -hmm. they're not they're not they're not good deals for for the United States. And that appeals to his base because it's simple. You can just say they don't work rather than actually going into the complexity of why you've still got problems. And there, but there's no counterbalance to him in terms of because because these are sort of very sober institutions, right? That are very measured and thinking long term and investing in dams and infrastructure projects that last decades. They don't play these short term sort of populist games, if you like. And so there's no one out there that is, is putting a voice and saying, you know what, multilateralism may not be perfect, globalization may not be perfect, but it's achieving X, Y, and Z. It's drowned out by this noise. And it's not just in America, but but now in Europe and, and elsewhere, you're, you're having these voices coming out and saying, you know what, maybe we need to look after ourselves. Maybe it's about bilateralism. Maybe it's about um, plurilateralism, if I can even <laughs> pronounce that. Um, and it's, it's less about getting loads and loads of countries together, but more about you know, the transactional aspects to it, which isn't what these institutions are about at all. You know, I mean, there's various ways that you can respond to that. One could be, well, at least it's a little more honest to say that it is transactional. Because often, at the end of the day, these deals are transactional and who's actually benefiting. And, you know, a lot has been said about um, the international financial institutions in terms of who has a vote and how the more money, the more clout you have or the more influence you can have on how the institution goes. Every time there is the choice of who's going to be the next World Bank president, there's a push that why should it be an American? And at the end of the day, it remains an American. IMF, traditionally a European, and there's been a push to try to change that, and it doesn't. So in some ways, actually, we need to be a bit more honest about what they do. On the other hand, you can't simplify it and say, actually, I'm going to cross everything that's there, which are, you know, these are agreements that come about after, you know, years of uh, diplomatic efforts and looking at what is the common denominator, sometimes the lowest common denominator, sometimes um, the highest common denominator of what mutual benefit could be brought from, from a deal or an institution like this. Now, your point about then not being an attractive, I'm not sure if the word attractive is correct, uh, a strong voice that can counter... Rela a relatable voice. Really. Relatable voice, right. I mean, well, partly because, as I said, it's it's complicated, it's difficult. You know, if you're going to bring up 
Christine Lagarde to talk about why we still need the IMF. She couldn't say it in a sentence. It's impossible. Um, and so, therefore, it's very easy to say, well, actually, the IMF has brought nothing but problems for us. Well, then, one, no one asks you to back it up, and it's easy. Like, you just throw that out there. If you say, well, actually, no, we've brought much more, you'd have to give proof, and that takes much longer. So I think partly that. The other issue with everything that's happening in the U.S. and in Europe to a large part, it's easy, again, to get votes. And when it's politicized, that's what all of this is about. On the contrary, when you're talking about multi multilateral institutions that are based on all the different member states, it isn't so much that sort of politics. It's a different type of politics. And so it's the politics between different countries, but it's not how do they appeal to the voters because the voters don't really get a say in this. So it's different. I do think you have, you know, just across the border from America, a Canadian prime minister, Justin Trudeau, that is very appealing to the liberals and appealing to those who want to believe in a world order that can be based on opening up your arms instead of closing off your borders. However, Canada is less well-known than the U.S. and doesn't really play that sort of leadership role. Um, we've got the French president, Emmanuel Macron, who's made a really big case for Europe and working uh, through multilateral platforms. Will he have the same appeal? I'm not sure. We'll wait and see. But I think it's, it is an argument that is much larger than just the personalities and is what is going to be the world order, which is how you started this podcast, and also what do people trust and the financial crisis really took away a lot of trust. Um, the World Bank and IMF got a hit here in the Arab world when there were the uprisings of 2011 in countries like Tunisia and Egypt when they had been getting such good reviews from these two very traditional institutions that didn't take into account other socioeconomic factors. And I think they've learned that lesson, at least when it comes to their looking at the Middle mm -hmm. East region. Um, and so, so it's a process. It's a long process. And as we see more regional groupings come together and how they work with the World Bank or the IMF, we'll see, I think, more maturity in terms of putting out uh, messages to people and saying, well, this is why we're undertaking this sort of program. But again, I think until now, the usual thinking about these sorts of institutions, it is, it's a cold bureaucracy that doesn't take into consideration my own personal interests as an individual. I mean, if we, if we look at the challenges at the moment, the, the major challenges facing the world. We've got um, inequality and the difference this time, we've always had inequalities, it's the, in, the focus on inequality in developed nations. We've got forced displacement of people, which is seems to be a, somehow a bit of a peak generationally. Climate change, which is something no one can agree on. Um, you know, pandemics, the threat of, of disease is still out there. Um, conflicts, it, it, they're fragmented. I mean, overall data says that, you know, less people are dying from war, but there seems to be more war um, in different places. Um, and, uh, even, and and sort of you added to that is the, the kind of weakness of our approach, things like the, the WTO and, and other institutions that we've turned to, to kind of holistically deal with these, you know, these, these individual challenges in a, in, in one kind of swooping mechanism that the whole world gets together and decides, this is what we need, this is what, we, what will actually help us deal with these things. And interestingly, um, a lot of these problems now are, feel very, very personal to a lot of people. And so it's it's difficult to address things that feel very personal in that sort of cold, you know, intelligent way 
that we approach things or try to at least with these big institutions. And it seems to me that the mistrust that you just mentioned is almost a mistrust of that approach. Mm -hmm. And I feel that economists have never had a worse reputation than now. Um, I think about the UK and Mark Carney, the, the the governor of the Bank of England, has basically been blamed for austerity in the UK, and and he's been very much you know painted as a villain um, with the whole Brexit argument. Well, that's the thing because when Mark Carney wanted to come out and actually say, "Hold on, there are economic ramifications to what you people are doing," he was completely pushed back and said, "The Bank of England doesn't have a political opinion. You're not allowed to say what you actually think about these things." And so you almost feel like in some of these positions, they can't win. They have to keep a very you know, straight and narrow, this is just the numbers game. But at the same time, economics are never divided from the politics and from people's day-to-day lives. I mean, that's what they're there to serve. So how do you, how do you manage, you know, do, do, they, do they have a sense that this is a, a new challenge for them, that they can't just be um, sort of, the, the take, they can't just have a step back approach and say, you know, we, we're the neutral party, we're the objective view, we're the honest broker. And as you said, that's not always been the case, given how some of these institutions are structured. But they've at least given that appearance of swooping in to whichever economy is troubled. And, and we're, telling you, we're telling you the right medicine to take. Um, mm-hmm. And that no longer kind of sits well anymore with anybody. It make, makes true. people very think, angry, right? I, and I think there has been some understanding of that. I mean, for example, if you just look at who attended the annual meetings, it wasn't just the finance ministers and the bankers and the economists. There were, you know, leaders of SMEs or you had certain activists who were being invited. Journalists were invited to speak, not only just listen. So there has been, at least at these annual meetings, uh, an effort to open up and discuss these issues in terms of how they actually impact people's lives. So th- I think that's that's one point that th- the message has been there, but it's 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 going to take a really long time to change people's perceptions. But I do think there is an understanding, at least um, from the IMF and the World Bank, that there needs to be a different approach. The other issue is that you know you talk about MIGA, which is basically you know concerned with insurance when it comes to these huge investments, or the IFC. People don't understand that, and in a way, you can't really expect them to. Um, at the end of the day, it's the government's responsibilities. So individual governments, what they've done with their economies are the ones who are ultimately responsible and therefore should be held accountable by their people. More Business Extra in just a moment. But first, allow me to tell you about The National's other podcasts. Beyond the Headlines takes a deeper dive into the biggest news from the week with a distinct Middle Eastern point of view. An extra time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on iTunes or find us as always at thenational.ae. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi. You're listening to The National's Business Extra podcast. With me is our editor-in-chief, Mina Al-Arabi. We've been discussing multilateralism and how institutions like the World Bank and IMF, um, the WTO, and and how the approach to global trade and globalization and trying to do things as many countries together seems to be blunted of late, given all the challenges we're facing. Um, Mina, maybe we we, want to pick up on some of the positives. I know you were doing uh, a panel in Washington last week, um, and it was talking about how technology can influence the Middle East in terms of its outlook. Growth and yeah, growth, growth in the, in the Middle, Middle East. East. That's right. And I noticed on your panel, you, you had somebody from the IMF, mm-hmm. but you had two uh, tech startups. That's one, right. One health tech startup and and the other one Bitcoin bit, startup, b- a cryptocurrency startup. <laughs> yeah. um, and and so you were you were saying just before the break that um, 
the role of SMEs and startups is becoming increasingly more important. And, mm-hmm. and institutions like the World Bank and IMF are recognizing that. And do they bring a level of engagement and a point of view that, that kind of gives hope that with these new voices, that a multilateral approach can still succeed? I think so, because I think the idea is that multilateralism doesn't just have to be across different nations or like-minded institutions, but rather, you know, so if not horizontal, vertical also. And so I think that panel, which was, you know, one of only two seminars on the third day of the annual meetings, and was really well attended, and of course was um, webcast live, because again, part of this trying to open up and engage people from outside of these usual circles. And it was an interesting discussion, because the idea was that technology can help spur growth in the Middle East, North Africa. And while we were talking about SMEs and tech startups, but also in terms of scaling up a startup and and all these conversations, quite a few people from the floor were asking about, well, how do you bridge generational differences in digital literacy? Or how do you deal with the fact that an older generation might feel locked out of this growth? And so, again, it goes back to the societal. It wasn't just about helping economic growth, but rather growth writ large. And so that was quite interesting. And, you know, you say about the positives, it was really interesting because there was um, a professor from the American University in Cairo also on the panel, um, Sharif Kamel, and he was brilliant because he said, this is one of the very few good news stories that you could highlight from the Middle East North Africa region. And he said that because he said, actually, yes, technology is helping growth. And in addition to that, um, it was interesting to see that the IMF is looking for ideas and solutions from people who are on the ground coming up with their own solutions because they had to. So rather than being a top-down approach of, of telling people, well, this is what you need to do, and you know, this is not to say that economic policies should be ignored or that we don't need understanding of core macro and microeconomics, but rather also seeing how people are creating their own destinies and in terms of businesses and also how SMEs are becoming enabled because of technology. But then you go back to the core point that you still need financing, you still need regulations, you still need um, structural measures that in large part are taken by government and those governments who can't will turn back to these big banks or big institutions. And so, therefore, it is an ecosystem. And how do we make sure that it's working together better? You had spoken er earlier about inequality. And we do see the widening gap um, between the haves and the have-nots. And I think that's really playing a part into everything else that we're seeing in the world. And also that we see it much more now. So before you'd have inequality that wasn't as evident, and that's not to say that it's better or worse, but it's just to say now I am much more aware of what I have and what I don't have, and I can compare myself to not those only in my immediate vicinity, but around the world. And when I also see the opportunities that X country offers its citizens and why my own or another doesn't, um, that becomes very, very obvious very quickly today. And that in part is because of technology. Yes, and and technology as well is not like a natural resource like oil or gas or na- minerals or whatever it is. Where to to get hold of it, you need a huge um, mechanism, whether it's a state company or an international company, to come and actually get get it. Literally right, and you also aren't, don't need it. luck because I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, let's be honest. I mean, it's like what country you're born with and what natural resources it has. In large part, is luck. Yes, exactly. So anybody can have this technology. It's how you harness it, how you package it, how you approach it. So it's quite, if you want of another word, it's, it's, it's very, very democratic. 
Yeah, it's an equalizer. It is, but the nature of business is is to monopolize things. Right. Right. I mean, that's initially how things work, and they get going well, and then later on, it kind of spreads out. But you know, all kinds of critical economic thinking say that in the beginning, you need you need something to to, to kind of take hold of it and kind of get it going. And and this feels like it's very uh, spread out. And and while on the one hand, uh, we've got hundreds and hundreds of talented young people and not so young people mm-hmm. um, with tech startups, not just in the UAE, but in Egypt, in, in Lebanon, in, in other countries in the Morocco. region. Absolutely, everywhere. And they're doing wonderful things. And one of those could be tomorrow's Microsoft or Apple or Uber or you name it. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, that's going to be you know, quite stunning for, the, for this region. But there's n- it's not a guarantee in the same way as saying, well, I've surveyed oil. So, you know, you, right. you, it's, it, the, the risks have increased exponentially. The risks have, but then also the opportunities are more varied. What's interesting, of course, everybody in this region talks about Souk.com and that it's a success story because Amazon purchased it. Well, Souk.com got IFC support a few years ago. And so it also shows you how sometimes these banks and their influence behind the scenes helps to grow and to take um, a company or a startup that would have been successful but needs that extra push. Um, Likewise, the IFC last May did an effort with the World Economic Forum in uh, the Dead Sea in Jordan where they actually put a spotlight on the top 100, I believe, startups in the region. It was 100. I couldn't remember if it was 100 or 500 because 500, Oasis 500. 500, Well, Oasis 500 has thrown me, so I'm always confused now about startups, whether it's 500 or 100. But yes, so 100 startups. Um, And then again, by just putting the spotlight, but also announcing that they would support them, there's a boost of confidence in that particular venture that gets other people interested. Um, so again, it goes back to the point of this being an ecosystem, but also the big banks now realizing that SMEs are so important um, to become drivers. One of the things that we discussed on the on the panel in Washington was that, you know, it's not about creating jobs. It's about creating the companies they're going to have those jobs. And all too often you hear in the, again, very monotonous kind of language, we must create this many jobs. I mean, the latest figures, 25 million young people will enter the labor force in the next five years in this region, in the Middle East, North Africa region. So then how are you going to create jobs? Well, you can't create jobs. You're going to have to create the companies or the institutions that will actually hire these people. And, you, you know, you need to embrace the technology that and the education of that technology so people can actually use it. And ed- education is a big part of this. Um, and I, I wonder how much of, of a conversation ends up revolving around education and talent development um, when we have these big meetings in Washington, when the IMF and World Bank get together. Well, you know, no one's going to go up on stage and say, actually, you don't need education. Right. So it's one of those things where everybody says education is the key to this. But then very little is actually done to make sure that enough of each country's GDP is actually put towards education as opposed to other things. Having said that, the problem with education is that usually people are thinking either the primary school level or they're thinking university level. And the cycle for that to actually kick in and make a difference for an economy is at least, you know, five to ten years. And so, therefore, people are saying, well, we need short-term measures and these are long-term investments. Can we wait? One, it goes back to the politics that sometimes you can't wait. And two, sometimes the situation is too desperate because the education system has been ignored. And so we are where we are today. How do we work on vocational training? So, again, people talk about this vocational training, um, you know, online learning, uh, lifelong learning. All of these statements or phrases were mentioned 
over the few days of the annual meetings. I'm not sure we made too much progress in terms of saying, okay, well then, how do we make it happen? Because we've all identified the problem. And I think that's one of the things I'd like people to go away with is we've identified the problem and that's very important because often that's halfway to solving a problem is identifying it. But to actually have the political courage and the finance and then the innovation to start solving these problems, I think we're still some way away from that. And I'm not sure that large multilateral institutions are nimble enough to actually make changes and say, okay, we need to change how we do things. And that's where there is an opportunity for some of these either regional banks or newer kids on the block to say, you know what, we'll tear up the the usual policy book and we're going to do it a different way. And that's exciting. So, I mean, if we if we talk about everyone understood the, the old world order, you said Bretton Woods, and it was very much US-led and Western-centric and and a kind of product of the of the Second World War and the Cold War. And now we're in a period of time where um, th- that old order is shifting away, and we're looking for something new to come into its place. So uh, the, 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 the optimist in me, and, and I tend to be an optimist, is that the space is being created for something new right now. And and I always feel that you know if if we if we talk about sort of the the darker side of um, some of the populist politics that are going on, I almost I, I don't worry about it too much because I almost feel like if that's the best that they've got, you know, it, we don't have to worry about it for too long because it's really short on ideas and and genuine um, you know stickability because after you've said those things a number of times and you're unable to actually um, make make those sort of broader wide sweeping claims into actual policy and reality then something else will come into its place that can do i guess the 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 question is to understand how long will this period of interregnum be you know how much are we (laughs) gonna have to to put up with you know it's already felt like the last two years has been you know unprecedented in terms of upheaval you know i don't know if it's actually going to change is this the era of consistent change and that's the only thing that's consistent Perhaps it is, uh, partly because, again, you know, we learn about things much faster now. We're all m- much, much more aware of what's going on around the world at different times, especially for those of us who are, you know, either addicted to our social media feeds or in the news world. And so I think part of that is that con- consistent change. But then you could say, well, if we look at history, there's always world powers that are emerging. And until they fully emerge, and, you know, of course, the bet has been on China since the turn of this century, that this is the emergence of China. Well, is it the emergence of China? You know, we've got the... Um, Communist Party um, meetings this uh, week, I believe. Yes, 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 this week. And so people are looking always at trying to read what is the Chinese leadership thinking. And, you know, they think in much longer terms than, you know, American midterm elections in Congress or the four-year presidential um, elections. So is this a period of time where we're seeing the decline of American world uh, hegemony and the rise of a multi polar world where you have the Chinese, the Russians, the Americans. People have thought Brazil, but doesn't seem to be so, you know. Um, I The jury's still out, so we don't know. But it's, it's an exciting time to be observing and writing about these things. But it's also a very worrying time, and it's a troubling time when economies continue to um, stagnate on the one hand or have fears of yet more bubbles that may burst and whether it's, you know, housing or or other types of bubbles. And so I think for the ordinary person who's listening, hopefully to this, um, or watches, you know, the headlines coming out from 
the UN General Assembly meetings or the World Bank meetings or, you know, Davos, World Economic Forum, you know, where people love to say that it's the source of evil only because people don't necessarily have access to it or understand it. For people watching all of that, there is a sense of there's uncertainty, but the rich people are still okay. And so the, the concern is that if you are either well-to-do or have been you know, advantageous enough to have been in an industry that will always secure you or you are from a very well-to-do family that you don't have to worry about this as much as the person who actually doesn't have a secure economic future. And so in some ways it goes back to jobs and it goes back to opportunity. I wonder if we, if we if we go back to what we started talking about in the beginning, which was about the effects of the financial crisis and, and have we really, you know, worked through a lot of them. Um, certainly before 2008, 2009, uh, you had a feeling that that even though things weren't perfect, uh, people had this idea that they could join the ranks of those privileged that you mm-hmm. that you talk about. And in the last sort of um, decade or so, it's become apparent that that's not quite as easy mm-hmm. as perhaps people believed it would be. Um, at least to feel rich, right? Mm. Whether they are or they aren't it depends on your own definition. But certainly, a lot of people feel poorer than their neighbours or the or the or the or the people down the street. And that, and I think. You can show them all the facts in the world and, and a World Bank economist, and I'm not picking on the World Bank, but say mm-hmm. an economist from one of these institutions can, can, can pull up a presentation and a chart and say, well, actually, you're richer than you were seven years ago or, right. or you're, you know, the world is richer than it was yeah. and everything's working. But people don't care about facts when they feel something, right? Yeah, I, you're right. I mean, partly is you feel it, but also... In terms of feeling rich, there's also the sense of security. So there's certain jobs that are becoming obsolete. You know, everyone's worried about what does artificial intelligence mean for me? What does automation mean for my children? And so there is that sense of uncertainty that even if I have, you know, um, income this year, next year, there's no longer the certainty of you're going to be in the same job for the next 25 right. years. And that in large part is because of technology. And whether we like it or not, that's that's the direction it's going in. But there's also the sense of security and, you know, who you are and where you come from, not only in terms of what passport you hold, but also, I mean, for example, if you look at the United States, what state you're in or actually what, you know, little suburb you're living in determines how you're going to fare in life. We have the same thing in the UK where, you know, your schooling is determined by which area your family can afford to live in. And that can set you up for life. And people are much more aware of that in, in systems that are meant to be equalizers and allowing social mobility. I think there's more and more realization as we have more information that actually there isn't that much equality. So people are kind of having to face up to the truth, if you want. I mean, maybe it's always been a truth and and we've been able to convince ourselves otherwise. But that tension now that exists, um, and and you were saying a little bit earlier that 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 could be a tension that we have to sit with for a long time. Um, But that tension can sometimes create things, unexpected things, serendipitous things, good things that could come Mm -hmm. up. Um, and, and, And just like, you know, we don't know when the next disaster is going to befall us. We also don't know when the next big change. I mean, no one could have predicted um, sort of the mid to late 90s of what the internet would do to business, both good and bad. Yes, absolutely. And certainly there could be something around the corner 
um, whether it's AI or, or some mm. other development that that could suddenly change the game once again for everyone. Yeah, and you know, for example, if you look at a sector like the health sector, there has been so much in terms of innovation when it comes to medicines. And here in Abu Dhabi, there is going to be a major um, world uh, health forum happening that is going to try to target and eliminate malaria um, and polio. And again, you know, polio cases now are under 40 cases that have been reported in the world, which would seem impossible to many countries only 20 years ago. So in some ways, yes, you're right, because you don't know what's around the corner where there is that genius vaccine. You know, we're all waiting to see what happens in terms of cures for Alzheimer's or cancer, which are really the diseases of this era. So absolutely, technology makes that exciting. And that also creates jobs and creates industries and new industries that we can't necessarily see. Um, but on the other hand, I think the sense of uncertainty, especially when you're going to meetings, is in large part because we're used to a post-Second World War, post-Cold War order that is ending. Um, and so we'll have to see what replaces that. Hopefully it doesn't have to emerge after a different war. Um, and that emerges um, with, again, all the geopolitics that we witness around the world. Mina Al-Arabi, the National's Editor-in-Chief, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was great chatting with you. You've been listening to the Business Extra podcast. Many thanks to our producer, Kevin Jeffers. You can download this podcast and all our other programs on iTunes. Of course, go to thenational.ae for our fuller coverage on everything else. Thanks for being with us, and we hope you join us again next week. Thank you.